my pickle vinegar You'd think I'd be happy But I'm not Everybody knows my name But it's just a crazy game Oh, it's lonely at the top Good afternoon, if that's when you're listening to this. And actually, if you're listening to this on Monday, if everything has gone well, I'm actually in Maine. Uh, we're actually taping this the, re- the week before, but we want you to have something brand new to listen to. And we're going to talk to Bill McKibben in the second half of the show, uh, probably the most the man most associated with journalism and activism about climate change. He'll talk about why and how that hasn't been the issue it should have been in the campaign and explain why our handling of it should more closely approximate how we approached World War II. But we're going to begin with what else? Donald Trump, uh, just when you think when you've pulled back all the layers of this onion, there turned out to be more to pull back. Hence, perhaps the title Trump Revealed, An American Journey of Ambition, Ego, Money, and Power by Michael Cranish and Mark Fisher. Michael Cranish, investigative political reporter for The Washington Post, and Mark Fisher, senior editor at The Washington Post. So welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. I think that, you know, everybody has their own little detail probably that jumps out at them. For me, I think it's that uh, Donald Trump's <laughs> Donald Trump's marriage, his first marriage to Ivana Trump, included a prenup overseen by Roy Cohn and then a wedding officiated by Norman Vincent Peale. It's kind of like every archetypal character of the latter 20th century just appears at some point or other in this man's life. But I want to be, begin talking a little bit about one of the relationships you sketch out. And it's, it's one that we think must be one of the Rosetta Stones for unlocking Donald Trump. So, uh, Mark Fisher, I'll start with you. Tell us more about Fred Trump. Fred Trump was a successful uh, builder of middle-class housing, rental apartments in Brooklyn and Queens. And uh, in fact, my own uh, great uncle lived in Trump Village in Brooklyn. And so it was just a place where middle-class families came, uh, often immigrants, often Jewish families. And Fred Trump was the guy who was seen around the property, people who came around and he collected rent. And it was just a very middle-class existence. Donald Trump grew up in this. He learned the business at his father's office near Coney Island, and that's where he absorbed not only the art and business of building buildings, but also the politics of it, how to bring politicians to bear, how to get what you want in the way of zoning variances and the other things that you need to build buildings. But that's where Donald also parted ways with his father. And his father, although very successful, was someone who knew his area and stuck to it. He was a conservative, cautious guy. He told his son, uh, don't get into debt. And Donald Trump became the king of debt. He told his son, be satisfied with Brooklyn and Queens, and Donald Trump wanted to cross the bridge into Manhattan. Fred Trump was a cold, distant guy. He didn't have a close relationship with his children until they got of age, mid-teens perhaps, uh, where they could hang around at the office, learn the business. That's when the real bonding took place. And the same thing has happened in the next generation between Donald and his children, where they were rather distant in the early years. They chose to live with their mothers after the divorces, and only later did they come to spend a lot of time at Trump Tower and out at the construction sites learning the business from their father. 
So, Michael Granish, the old saying is, history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. And there's kind of a sense of this with Donald Trump and Fred Trump. In all the ways that Mark was just suggesting, there's a sense uh, of Donald Trump wanting to outlive his father's limitations to, to operate on a much larger and more glamorous scale than Fred Trump. But I don't know, reading the book, as the book goes along, I kept thinking, in an odd way, there's another similarity. And that is that uh, you guys seem to find, as you strip away the veneer of glamour from Donald Trump, you kind of see Fred Trump a little bit. There's a way in which, you know, he'd rather go home with a Hershey bar than with some glamorous model. There's a way in which he's kind of, he doesn't have that many friends. He's kind of that guy that he was so eager not to be. Well, you know, when we visited him in his office at Trump Tower, there was a very compelling image that we saw on his desk. The desk was covered with magazine covers, pictures of Donald Trump. And on the wall, there were pictures of Donald Trump throughout. But there was one uh, portrait uh, that stood on the desk alone, and that was the picture of Trump's father, Fred Trump. He clearly is just uh, so close to his father in the sense that he carries that memory with him. And let me tell you uh, one story that, that illustrates this. So Mark was just talking about how they had Trump Village and they rented thousands of apartments uh, at the Trump management company that was based in a very modest headquarters near Coney Island. Um, When Donald was about 25, his father, Fred, brought him in to be president of the company. And together they oversaw maybe it was 14,000 or so uh, apartments. And in 1973, the federal government was doing a lot of testing to see if there was racial bias in the way apartments were rented. And they started focusing on the Trump company uh, apartments, and lo and behold, they found out that blacks were being turned away, and they sent testers, and they, uh, long story short, found out that Trump agents were turning uh, blacks and others to other apartments rather than ones that were rented mostly to whites. And the federal government, in the end, sued by name Donald and Fred Trump and their company for racial bias. And this is one of the most significant such cases at the time. And for Donald Trump, you can just imagine being a 25-year-old, you come in, you're president of the company, and the government has sued you and your father. He felt very protective uh, of his father, not to mention his own reputation, and was just beside himself uh, with anger about uh, how they were being uh, accused of racial bias. And Donald essentially was given the decision, you know, should we settle or should we fight the U.S. government? And as he was deciding this, at this point, he'd moved into Manhattan in an apartment, and he was a member of a nightclub called Look Club. And he walks in one night, and there's a gentleman there named Roy Cohn, a sort of infamous character. He'd been the lawyer for Senator Joseph McCarthy of the Army McCarthy hearings fame. And he starts talking to Roy Cohn, and he tells him the story of the racial bias suit and, and the very important decision he's about to make. And Roy Cohn, who himself had fought the government time and again over the years, said, uh, don't settle, fight like hell. And uh, when they hit, she hit back 10 times harder. And Roy Cohn became Donald Trump's lawyer in the case. He filed a $100 million counterclaim against the U.S. government, which was immediately thrown out of court. And over a course of a couple of years, eventually the Trumps decided they had no choice but to settle the case. And they could have done this right at the beginning. But from Trump's perspective, you know, he feels like he won because he didn't have to admit wrongdoing. Basically, the settlement allowed him to not admit wrongdoing, but to take steps such as, you know, saying that I will proactively go out and court blacks to rent my apartments and so forth. And from the federal government standpoint, they felt this was a significant victory. So both sides sort of declared victory. But it's a foundational moment uh, for Donald Trump because he imbues that philosophy of when you're hit, hit back 10 times harder. And also left him with an animus towards the federal government uh, and what he perceived as an overreach, uh, which he retains to this day. 
It is an interesting question, uh, Mark, how big a figure Roy Cohn was to Donald Trump. Roy Cohn, a guy so vicious that I think as Trump points out in your book, when uh, opposing parties would hear that Roy Cohn was taking the other side, they'd often just back down from whatever litigation or legal dispute they were planning. Just They didn't want to go up against Cohn because he would do anything to win. You do, you do wonder about this. You, you wonder whether Cohn and Fred Trump kind of fit together to form two broken pieces forming a single paternal amulet. You know, Fred maybe just a little bit too small time. Roy Cohn, whatever else he was, he knew everybody. I don't know. How big was Roy Cohn to Trump? Yeah, I think those are really the two key figures in the development of the character we know as Donald Trump, the father who gave him all of these tools about how to succeed in business, how to use uh, the politicians to his own benefit, and with Roy Cohn, filling in those gaps uh, where Donald saw his father as too reticent, unwilling to step up to the big challenge of the ultimate stage in real estate of Manhattan and getting buildings built in that impossible environment. Roy Cohn was the way to do that. He taught him to to manipulate the press to believe that all publicity is good publicity. And so they were really complementary forces in Donald Trump's life. The third piece, the third leg of that stool, I think, is Donald Trump's mother. We know far less about her than we do about these other guys. And Donald Trump is really not very forthcoming about his mother. He talks about her as someone who was very much into pageantry, who had a great eye for showmanship. She was a student of how people dressed and of the British royalty and so on. But very little about uh, her character comes through from him. And one of the few things, one of the few obstacles that Donald Trump threw in front of us in the reporting of this book uh, was he did not uh, allow us to speak to his siblings. He asked them not to speak to us. And so a little bit of that family inside history is is a bit of a black box. You know, there's this guy, Mark, that we see who, I mean, he just, he can't stop making it personal with people and saying things that nobody else wants to say. And, and he's rude. And I think one of the things that's kind of surprising, will surprise people who read this book, is that he was brought up by extremely polite people and that they were polite even by the standards of the day, that uh, Trump and his siblings were even not allowed to call each other nicknames around the house, and that even as he headed out to school, there was this combination of this guy who had rather exquisite, well-brought-up manners, and then a guy who would tell you your date was a dog. I mean, it's emerging even then, I guess. Right. And Colin, you were the first to, to really draw that from the book, and I'm glad you have, because you're absolutely right. This was a very traditional immigrant German household with the somewhat stereotypical formality uh, associated with that German background. And so uh, that's how Donald grew up. He grew up, uh, they weren't allowed to use cuss words, and they, uh, there was a bit of germophobia going on in the family that uh, to this day uh, survives in Donald Trump as a in a reticence to shake hands with people. He's had to overcome that on the campaign trail, but it took some doing. So, but overall, yes, there's, there is that disconnect. And so when we see him become this guy who is kind of coarse and vulgar and insulting on the campaign trail, what's going on there, I think, is a very uh, different part of Donald Trump's personality, which is he grew up a wealthy kid in Queens, and he wanted 
from the start to kind of set himself off from that wealthy environment and to retain a connection to the people. He's fancied himself a man of the people, a populist, really for much of his life. And so he always liked to hang around, not with his fellow billionaires, but with the security guards working for him at the company. With the, he liked to go hang out at the construction sites and talk to the workers. So he has had that connection, uh, and he feels that, that he understands people who make a whole lot less money than he does, even though he's led a rather secluded life. He has not really uh, spent much time outside of Trump Tower and, and the other homes he has across the country. When I asked him, you know, when was the last time you went to a supermarket and been out just to kind of that everyday life that people lead? And he had trouble summoning that last time. It goes back quite some years. His vocabulary is very much stuck in the era in which he grew up. Uh, some people have made the comparison to sort of a madman kind of attitude about uh, talking about the blacks or the Hispanics. You know, another comparison I would make is to the, the kind of stereotypes that he has about people of different racial and ethnic backgrounds. It's almost, almost a Don Rickles sensibility about drawing conclusions about other people. It gets him in a lot of trouble. It also wins favor among people who are similarly inclined. I, I, it's funny that you said the Don Rickles thing. Listeners to the show will know that I've mentioned a couple of times that I think Don Rickles in particular is a way of explaining a lot of things about Donald Trump. So, Michael, one of the things that emerges here is, is that there is in Trump a, a little bit of Charles Foster Kane. We may not be able to figure out what his rosebud is exactly, but there is, just as Mark was suggesting, this this guy who emerges maybe as a, a figure of some loneliness. You guys asked him who his friends are. He really couldn't answer that question very well. There's a, a scene earlier in the book where somebody describes him as the guy you meet at the party who's already looking over your shoulder to see the next person and the next person. And that's very much the way he's lived his life. This thing, that thing, I'm going to own a USFL team. I'm going to run beauty pageants. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And none of, the, none of it seemed to really cock up that, that psychic wound. <laughs> Whatever it is. Yeah, go ahead. You know, you mentioned the Rosebud uh, Citizen Kane thing. It's interesting. There is a video that shows Fred Trump speaking about Donald. And it is a speech that Fred Trump gave when Fred Trump received the Horatio Alger Award, which, of course, is given for someone who comes up from modest circumstances, though Fred Trump had something from his own father, but comes up from relatively modest circumstances and becomes a big success. And in his speech, he says that you've got to love what you do, otherwise you will become a nothing. Mm. And just imagine the scene of a movie, and mm. Donald Trump is in the audience listening to his father saying that, and you've got this voice in your ear saying, you, you know, you, you can't be a nothing. You've got to be not just like me, but, you know, more than me. And so for Donald Trump, he's got to be not just something, but a very big something, you know, with his name on buildings. And he's talked about how proud his father would be uh, if he knew that he was if he'd lived to see his son uh, run for president. So to me, in a way, that is sort of the rosebud moment. Um, there's a way in which he is very reductionist about people and their bodies, but it's sort of everywhere. And, and what could be more atavistic and kind of you know out of touch with modern realities than beauty pageants in which he has immersed himself? And so, Mark, you guys tell this one story about this beauty queen or pageant winner who had uh, put on a lot of weight, uh, at least too much weight for Donald Trump. 
Yeah, exactly. This is a case in which uh, Donald Trump humiliated a winner of one of his own beauty pageants by holding a press conference, summoning TV cameras to come to see this winner who uh, was at a gym trying to shed some of that weight. And she had uh, added uh, a number of pounds and he paraded her before the cameras and presented her as someone who had lost her way and essentially porked out uh, to be crass about it in, in the way that he was. And this woman, years later, uh, is still deeply hurt, deeply offended by what Donald Trump did to her. And, of course, Trump uh, argues that he was trying to help her and get her back on the right path and uh, make sure that she was fit and so on. But it was it was the kind of cruelty that is often associated with him through the comments that he makes about people. This was a particularly extreme example of it. It's the kind of thing that he would go on the Howard Stern show to joke about. He would go on Don Imus's show to, to joke about these things. And this was part of that period where he presented himself uh, to the public as sort of a cartoon character, a Richie Rich, uh, who was someone who was so rich that he didn't have to worry about what he said. He could say anything. Now, he's taken elements of that in this, this new version of Donald Trump that's come along in recent years. And the way he made that pivot was through The Apprentice. The Apprentice reality show was a tool that Donald Trump used to turn his image from that kind of caricature of the boorish, cartoony kind of guy into someone who was decisive, who was a leader, uh, someone who actually had, uh, although he became famous for the you're fired line, he actually delivered that line with some humility and he would often accede to the decisions of his fellow executives rather than ramming his own view through in who he selected. You guys portray him as somebody who's basically always acting and always controlling the narrative, right? So he's acting on The Apprentice. He's controlling narratives any way he can. He thrives on confidentiality agreements with his ex-wives. I mean, you guys also document extraordinarily well the way that he would do these strange dances with the press and using these aliases like John Barron and John Miller calling the press and talking about himself as though he were a completely different person. Did you ever find a moment where it's like, oh, no, that's him. That's him right there. For me, that moment was when I asked him about friendships. And I said to him, who, who do you turn to when you have some real trouble in your life, or just some doubts? Uh, who do you confide in? I was asking the question because we were reporting this book, and I wanted to talk to people who knew him intimately. We talked to lots of business associates and childhood friends and classmates, but I was looking for an adult friend who he really confided in. And he, in this rare silence, he, he kind of paused rather awkwardly and said, you know, I don't really have friends in the way that a lot of people think of it. Somebody you'd go out to dinner with, for example. Gave me some names off the record of people. As it turned out, those people didn't really consider themselves close friends of Donald Trump. So what he did say was that if he really wanted to confide in someone, it would be his children. And that it was also a very telling moment. His children came to have quite a, a powerful bond with him once they got into the family business. And that seems very genuine. Michael, what about for you, do you, is there a moment where you feel like you see the real guy? Well, I guess I would uh, be drawn to the story that he tells about the death of his brother, Fred Jr. They were close. He looked up to his brother. He said that his brother was better looking than he was. And what happened with Fred Jr. was Fred Jr. did not go into the family business, did not go into building. Uh, he wanted to become a pilot, and he did. And Donald uh, looked down on that. He said, that's like, why would you want to be like being a bus driver? And Fred uh, Jr. Uh, was a tragic story. He, um, according to Donald, uh, drank, smoked, 
and died at a very early age. So Donald Trump has said that influenced him very deeply and that to this day he's never taken a drop of alcohol, doesn't smoke, and seems genuinely sad about what happened to his brother. You know, if it is all absolutely correct that because of his brother's uh, tragic death that Donald himself doesn't drink or smoke, you know, that's a compelling story uh, that he carries with him uh, all the time. We will never, never truly know this man. But if you want to take a stab at it, you couldn't do better than Trump revealed an American journey of ambition, ego, money, and power by Michael Cranish and Mark Fisher. It takes you the whole way from the immigration of his grandfather from Germany and his mother from Scotland all the way through to the conventions. I don't know how you guys did it. Uh, but uh, thanks very much for joining us today. The book is great. When we come back, we are going to talk to Bill McKibben about climate change, what could be done about it, and why it has and introduced itself more uh, as uh, as a huge theme in this campaign. So, uh, Michael Krenish and Mark Fisher, thank you for being with us today. Thank you, Colin. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. I don't know you. You've been lately on my mind. I don't know you. You've been lately on my mind. So this is sort of one of those stories of the dog that didn't bark, right? There is, uh, in fact, something very, very important uh, happening in the world. If we don't stop it, the world won't stay the same. Uh, Anybody with a lick of sense at this point understands that. And you would think during this fiery summer full of hot temperatures and hot tempers on the campaign trail, we'd be hearing a lot more about climate change, and we just don't. Uh, So here to talk about that is Bill McKibben. Bill McKibben is the Schumann Distinguished Scholar at Middlebury College, the co-founder of the climate group 350.org. He recently wrote an article for The New Republic about our need to treat climate change as a war with the kind of mobilization effort that would most closely parallel what we did uh, to, to get ready to go into World War II. And, and while we were in World War II. So, Bill, welcome back to our show. Good to be with you, as always. Uh, Bill McKibben is joining us through the miracle of Skype, which I think is totally solar, too. I think Skype uses no power whatsoever. <laughs> so, um, so this is kind of a war that we're in without exactly a Pearl Harbor, but there are things close to Pearl Harbors, things that if we looked at them closely might alarm us as much, if not more, than uh, than Pearl Harbor. So uh, sketch out a few of those. If you wanted to sort of try to talk somebody into the mobilization effort that you describe uh, in the New Republic, what would you tell them? Well, you know, I wrote the first book about climate change long, long ago, 1989, a book called The End of Nature. And back then, this was all theoretical. It was what we thought was coming. And now there's not the least theoretical thing about it. We've lost most of the summer sea ice in the Arctic. So one of the two or three biggest physical features on Earth is completely changed. The planet looks different if you look at it from a satellite. The oceans are about 30% more acidic as seawater absorbs CO2 from the atmosphere, and that's already interfering with the marine food chain, which is the biggest biological system on the planet. We now see these alternating cycles of drought and flood that every day now kill and displace 
tens of thousands of people someplace around the world. I mean, last week, you know, simultaneously in Louisiana, we had the, I think, 15th thousand year flood in the southeast in the last three or four years. This wasn't even a hurricane. This was just a rainstorm. But the air is now so warm and can hold so much water vapor that it just comes down in buckets. There were places that got almost three feet of rain in the course of two days. It completely overwhelmed it. And while that was going on, they were evacuating 80,000 people from above Los Angeles because of completely out of control wildfires after five years of drought. And that's just the U.S. There are stories, of course, far worse than that in far more vulnerable places around the world. The question is not, should we decide to go to war against climate change? The question is, given that carbon dioxide and methane are now waging a powerful war against us, will we decide to respond or are we going to continue our policy of unilateral disarmament? Right. Uh, it's not like ISIS. Is ISIS going to attack us in the U.S.? Is ISIS going to continue to be this this or that kind of threat? ISIS gets talked about way, way, way more than climate change. And I mean, uh, climate change isn't an if. It's already happening and it's going to continue happening unless, you know, major, major steps are taken. And I, I think what's... So the, yeah, go ahead, Bill. I was going to say the good news is, if there is any good news, is that five or 10 years ago, we really didn't know what those steps were. Mm-hmm. We didn't have the technology, but just like the scientists did in giving us a warning, the engineers have done their job in giving us now cheap solar panels and wind power. Price of solar panels dropped 80% in the last 10 years. Wind power in place after place is now the cheapest form of energy uh, there is on the planet. You know that off the coast of Rhode Island the day before yesterday, the first small offshore wind farm in the U.S. went into operation. We need to be doing that on a vastly, vastly different scale, the way that they've done it in a few places around the world, Germany, Denmark, now parts of China. We could do it, but only if we really, really focus, far more than really most of our political leaders are even contemplating at the moment. And that includes those political leaders who thankfully at least recognize that physics is real and don't insist that climate change was a hoax manufactured by the Chinese. So um, I have so many things that I, I want to explore with you, but, but maybe for, to begin with, you know, reading your article, I was thinking, wow, the good news is that these engineers and scientists that Bill is quoting have actually figured out how somewhere between 2030 and 2050, what it would take to basically take uh, the United States off fossil fuels. Probably the the bad news contained inside the good news is that there's a huge fossil fuel industry with a lot of built up infrastructure that's looking at that going, wow, somebody knows how to get entirely rid of us by 2030, somewhere between 2030 and 2050. We've got to do something about that. That's exactly right. And And they are doing the very best that they can. They're spending huge amounts of money and, you know, they're sort of ongoing PR and political offensive to make sure that the status quo doesn't substantially change. We've built a movement big enough that it's begun to worry them. I I think the turning point for that worry may have been when, against all prediction, we managed to build a big enough coalition to stop the Keystone Pipeline. And now every fossil fuel project on the planet gets challenged and challenged seriously. The head of the big oil lobby 
complained not long ago about what he called the keystoneization of everything that they were trying to do. Um, that made my black heart happy, I got to tell you. It mm -hmm. makes me incredibly happy to watch the very brave people in the Dakotas at the Standing Rock Sioux Reservation this week trying to block the construction of the next giant oil pipeline down out of the Dakotas to the Gulf of Mexico. I got to say, it's just inspiring to watch Native Americans from across the West coming together in this fight. Uh, I wrote a piece yesterday saying maybe after 525 years, it's about time we started listening to the only people who ever successfully inhabited this continent for the long term. That movement is there. I think over time it will grow and grow big enough to outmuscle the fossil fuel industry. But the dangerous, difficult question is over time. Do, are we moving fast enough? Are we catching up? And at least for the moment, the answer is no. Our political systems here and around the world aren't proving nimble enough to keep up with the pace of physics. That's why, you know, it was a big jolt to have, as on many other issues, to have Bernie Sanders in the presidential race and push the whole discussion. He was really the first presidential politician in American history to really take this issue and make it a centerpiece and a priority. And you can see the results of that in the Democratic platform. The Democratic platform announces that there'll be an emergency climate summit within the first hundred days of a Clinton administration. We will definitely do our best to hold the Clinton administration to that promise and to try and push for really much deeper action than we've gotten so far. Well, as long as we're on that whole subject, your familiarity with the Democratic platform isn't uh, that of a bystander. It's uh, that of somebody who was intimately involved with crafting that platform. And reading the piece in The New Republic, it's clear that the first thing you encountered was resistance, that, that the first reaction anyway of the Clinton forces was to vote down, what, eight out of nine proposals? Right. So Bernie got to name five people to go, five out of the 15 to be on the platform committee, and he asked me to be one of them. And so, yeah, I introduced a whole skein of proposals dealing with climate change, and they all got voted down by seven to six margins. I mean, it was just sort of pretty much the Bernie, <laughs> Bernie people versus the Clinton people. But at the last minute, you know, Bernie didn't cave. He, despite enormous pressure, stayed very strong right through the platform negotiations. And so at the final negotiations, we actually got not everything that we wanted, but really the most progressive platform that any party in this country, any major party has ever produced. It's pretty remarkable. Uh, you know, it says that uh, sun and wind will be prioritized over natural gas. It says that the same test that was used on the Keystone Pipeline, would it exacerbate global warming, would be used for every policy decision in the federal government. It's not that the platform, like it's statutory law, and it's not like it means anything unless we make it mean something. But boy, it will be good, should Hillary Clinton be elected, to have some words and pledges and promises that we can at least try to hold her to, and we will. 
So oh, we're talking to Bill, Kip, Bill McKibben right now, uh, one of the earliest voices on uh, the whole question of climate change, the whole crisis of climate change, and now co-founder of the climate group, uh, 350.org. His piece in the New Republic says, look, we are at war right now. We're, we're at war uh, instead of with enemy army or a bunch of terrorists. Uh, we're at war with a process which we started and so far can't seem to stop. And so I want to talk instead about the war I want to talk about sort of one of the dominant subjects during this campaign because it keeps – I keep coming back to the idea and you deal with this towards the end of your article that in some ways this crisis is the perfect economic fit for America right now. I mean what has the conversation been about in this campaign, particularly from Trump? It's been about how all the jobs have gone someplace else. There aren't jobs. There's no manufacturing. We lost our manufacturing base. It went someplace else. Americans can't get good jobs anymore. And then if you listen to the people who are really smart, the Adam Davidson type people who are really smart about the economy, they say, you know, in in a lot of ways – globalization isn't good enough for enough people to keep everybody employed unless you rig the game a little bit. You have to take uh, some more money from the one percenters or at least, you know, the the high echelons of the American economy. And then you have to put people to work doing stuff that America needs done anyway, that it's uh, maybe a little bit uh, like the New Deal in that regard. So you take those arguments and you pair them up with your article describing chillingly uh, or burningly a, a crisis that really has to be addressed right now. And it seems like it's all in a weird way. It's all made for each other. I think you're absolutely right. It's such an interesting moment. Obviously, our economy is in certain sense sort of stagnant. Um, and it has to do with bad trade deals. But it also has to do with the fact that there isn't a kind of great project that we've taken on. <laughs> you know, That great project is obvious. Uh, we need to transform our energy system off fossil fuel and onto renewable energy in very short order. One of the kind of uh, premises of this piece is a series of remarkable studies by the Stanford professor, Mark Jacobson, detailing how every single state and indeed 130-some countries around the world telling them exactly what mix of renewables they could economically get to over the next 15 years. And it's like a blueprint for what we could do if we got our mojo back. Now, part of the interesting thing for me about researching this piece was to really understand uh, how much mojo we had back in the approach to uh, World War II. I mean, even before Pearl Harbor, FDR was getting business mobilized in a serious way. And the speed with which people worked was astonishing. I mean, in the matter of course of months, they built the biggest factory in the world at Willow Run in Michigan and started making bombers. I mean, bomber is a big, complicated airplane with, you know, hundreds of thousands of parts and rivets everywhere. And by the middle of the war, they were producing another one of them every hour. Okay, Uh, and that's how we won the war. Uh, By contrast, you know, the blade of a wind turbine is a technologically sophisticated thing, but it's no harder. We should be able to do this. The question is, can we do it fast enough? The question is, is focus, I guess. That's what the war provided people because their backs were against the wall got down to work. Well, our, our backs are against the wall. And so far, the only work we get down to is kind of sporadic relief efforts for people who've been flooded or burned or whatever out of their homes. 
that's um, that's not enough. We need to go to the root of this problem. Your piece is great, too, just kind of even describing the economic turnarounds that would happen and and the employment opportunities that would happen, the buildup that would have to go on. I mean, we're talking about, you know, multiple solar panel plants in every single state, multiple uh, uh, wind turbine plants in every single state, uh, talking about a situation where the people who are working in coal mines right now, breathing uh, unhealthy air and uh, assuming other risks from things that can go wrong uh, when you're underground, could be working in in these other plants instead. Um, The problem is, and maybe this will lead us into our next segment, is that when you do all those things, the people who, for example, run the coal coal mine say, hey, where are you going? (laughs) You can't go work at that solar plant. I need you down in my damn coal mine. And the people who are operating coal-fired plants uh, are saying the same thing. So why don't we take a break? When we come back, Bill will talk a little bit more about that. Uh, Also about how, in fact, uh, that plays out when he's out uh, campaigning for the kinds of changes we're talking about. So we'll take a break. We'll come back. If I could be anywhere If I could be anywhere in time If I could be anywhere and change things It would have to be now They say nothing lasts forever That all the plastic ever made is still here No amount of closing our eyes will make it disappear And the world can't take it very much longer We won't make it Christmas morning and school The world's gonna shake itself free of our greed Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan, with help from me, Kyone Wolf. The part of Bill Curry was played by Friedrich Drumpf. Check out our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and TuneIn, and check out our Colin McEnroe Show Facebook page. On tomorrow's show, we revisit our conversation about obsolescence. And now, back to Colin. We're talking to Bill Kibben. He's the Schumann Distinguished Scholar at Middlebury College, the co-founder of the Climate Group, 350.org, recently wrote an article for The New Republic about our need to treat climate change as a war, and also has written for The New York Times recently about what's been happening to him lately as he goes around spreading that message. But before we get to that, let's just back up for a second and just sort of maybe complete the thoughts from the, the previous conversation. I mean, in your New Republic article, you really do kind of sketch out an economic transformation that could happen that at least on this on the face of it seems as though it would solve some of the problems the economic problems not just the climate problems but the actual labor and economic problems that have been been kind of the substance of this campaign by in fact creating new manufacturing and new job opportunities and a new economy and making as Donald Trump would be say the best solar panels the top wind turbines <laughs> the best anywhere you know and we really do need to make the best solar panels and not buy cheap ones overseas and stuff like that the problem is there's all this built infrastructure. I, I can't remember the number that you came up with, like $25 trillion if, yeah. if you count every yeah. gas station and all that kind of stuff, right? So there's, it's not only that there's trillions of dollars worth of built infrastructure, it's that we keep adding to it all the time. The biggest problem that we face, and I think it's going to be the biggest problem for the Clinton administration, is that we've spent the last four or five years 
deluding ourselves into the idea that we were going to replace coal with natural gas and that was going to be the way out. And so we're in the process of or sort of beginning this wave of building. I think there's 300 gas fired power plants on the books now in the United States, you know, waiting to be built. The problem is the science doesn't work out. Fracking turns out to be an efficient method for leaching methane into the atmosphere and methane is even more powerful than carbon dioxide when it comes to trapping heat in the atmosphere. So gas-fired power plants are no better than coal and they make it much more difficult to make the move to really clean energy, sun and wind. So the you know the first rule of holes is when you're in one stop digging. In this case we should take that instruction literally. Uh, New York State, as you know, is banned fracking, joining Germany and France and a number of other places around the world. But in Washington, the fossil fuel industry remains top dog. And it'll be very interesting to see if we can convince the Clinton administration, if it occurs, to forego gas industry and concentrate on the science. Bill McKibben's with us. He's the co-founder of 350.org, and uh, he's been a leading uh, advocate of doing something about climate change for a long, long time, certainly since about 1989. He's got a piece in the New Republic, which I really encourage you to read. We can't possibly cover everything that's in it today, but uh, about why we should treat this pretty much the way we treated World War II. It's that kind of mobilization effort. So first of all, what what is the Clinton administration, assuming that there's going to be one? Uh, what what are they on the hook for? What have they basically said they're going to uh, said that they would do well it's a curious mix of things they refuse to say that they're going to stop fracking despite bernie's repeated push for that but hillary clinton did say that she was going to make regulations on fracking so tough that there won't be hardly any places in the country where you can do it (laughs) who knows quite what that means um talked about how they're going to put up a lot of new solar panels. Of course, some of that's going to happen anyway, because we've got kind of momentum going in that direction. The question is, are we going to put up enough and build the infrastructure and so on? In the platform, uh, as I say, they've said that there will be a uh, an emergency climate summit within the first hundred days to draw the best scientists and engineers and policy people from around the world. If that happens, we'll also need tens, hundreds of thousands of American citizens in the street in Washington, making it clear that there is a deep demand for this action. My sense of politics, I got to say, after the last few years, after this Keystone Pipeline fight and things like that, my sense of it is that unless you can mobilize people, unless politicians have a certain uh, amount of fear, then you don't get much done. But if you do, um, movements can be remarkably effective remarkably quickly. I mean, you know, it's hard to remember now, but five years ago, both Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton were against gay marriage. And then people built a movement so strong and beautiful that they'd both like to claim credit for inventing the entire idea. So, um... Uh, we should talk a little bit about what has been done because it's a model for what can be done. Uh, there is a solar city. Uh, ex- explain this in sunny, tropical Buffalo, New York. Uh, right. so wh- solar city, which is a very interesting company. Elon Musk's cousin runs it. <laughs> it's the biggest solar panel installer in the country, maybe the world. 
And they're now building a factory to make their own solar panels, the Gigafactory, they're calling it, in Buffalo, New York. There's another Gigafactory that Elon Musk himself is building to build Tesla batteries someplace in the desert in Nevada, I think. So these were each produce, you know, solar panels or batteries capable of doing a gigawatt of energy a year. And, you know, for this transition, you're sort of able to use that as a uh, unit of measurement almost and calculate how many of these plants we're going to need and how quickly. And the answer is we're going to need about 300 of them and we're going to need them at the, being built at the pace of 30 a year, you know, over the, the next stretch. That's difficult. I mean, that's World War II style difficult, but it's probably not physically impossible. Yeah. So that's 30 plants a year. Um, So we need to um, obviously create more uh, incentive in our political leadership. We're in the middle of a hard-fought election. And it's not just a hard-fought election for president. There are U.S. Senate races, uh, congressional races all over the country. There are uh, state legislative races um, down at that level, too. What do you, what do you think people should do? What should pe- how should people try to communicate this? How should people try to get at the kind of change you're talking about? Well, I, as I say, I think that movement building is the thing. Politicians notice it. You know, that's so when we started the Keystone Pipeline fight, everyone said there was not a chance in hell that we would win. The National Journal pulled its 300 energy insiders, you know, Hill staffers, lobbyists, things. Ninety three percent of them said that TransCanada would have their permit by the end of 2011, which is when that fight began. And instead, four years later, we beat it because more people went to jail than had gone to jail about any issue in a long time. There were more emails written to the Senate than on any issue in history, more public comments, more people, you know, with 400,000 people marching in the street in New York City in 2014. At a certain point, if you build movements, then politicians come around. This is a particularly hard case because literally the GOP is now kind of a wholly owned subsidiary of the fossil fuel industry. That's where their money comes from. And so they have enormous incentive not to shift. But another way of looking at it is on our side, in a sense, is Mother Nature, who is providing an endless ongoing educational course in what happens if you do nothing. And at this point, you know, 85 or 90 percent of American counties have had a federally declared emergency sometime in the last three or four years. I mean, you don't need to be a scientist to get this. You need to, like, be able to look out the window. And increasingly, people are. The polling data shows immense pressure from Americans for more action. Well, Bill McKibben, one indication that you're you're getting heard a little bit more or maybe even a lot more is that there are now people who actively dislike you uh, and uh, even make a point of following you around with cameras. I was just Googling your name. I found kind of a slick-looking website. I think it's called Core. That's basically like a whole, like, let's all hate Bill Kibben and one other person website. So, so what's that all about? Well, I mean, I guess it's a perverse tribute to a certain kind of effectiveness. It's true that now, you know, earlier this year, a right-wing, big right-wing, heavily funded group announced that they were going to track me the way that they've only done with presidential candidates before. And when I go out in public, there's someone walking backwards, always in front of me with a video camera recording my every step. I mean, there's something kind of funny about it. One of the big exposés 
was that one time I forgot my cloth bags at the supermarket and used the plastic ones. The level of kind of avoiding the issue is enormous. Yeah, I just the whole thing, and I think for a lot of readers of the New York Times, it was kind of startling because, I mean, I don't know, like I know Ralph Nader pretty well, I'm not, and Ralph Nader's caused a lot of trouble for a lot of people. I'm not sure he ever really experienced this thing. I don't. Maybe it's just it's it could be just a consequence of modern digital it may technology. Just be the world we live in, but the fossil fuel industry, you know, they are the richest industry on earth by far, and they're not used to ever losing. And as you've said before, there are trillions of dollars at stake. I mean, but on the other hand, by any, even just purely economic calculation, the dumbest thing that our species could possibly do is start letting the planet warm and at the out-of-control pace it's now warming. The economic cost of that is, well, there's not even numbers big enough to measure it. You can't have civilizations like the ones we're used to having if we let the temperature go up the way the scientists tell us it's now going up. But it it does seem that that one of the things that's got to change is rhetoric and even the metric by which we measure ourselves. I mean, the Obama administration takes quite a bit of pride in lowering the price of gas, right? Yes, and that's a big problem. Um, The Obama administration claims a lot of credit for making more progress on climate change than the administrations before it. But that's like saying, you know, I've drunk more beer than my 14-year-old niece, you know. Doing better than the Bush administration on dealing with climate change is not a helpful metric at all, especially since it's a moving target. If we don't get a hold of this problem soon, we never will. We've got to do things with focus and scale. And if we do, there'll be all kinds of payoffs. Well, writer and activist Bill McKibben, uh, so great to hear your voice again. Uh, So great to talk to you and uh, absolutely uh, read Bill's piece in The New Republic about a world at war this time uh, under attack from climate change. Thanks for being with us today. Well, what a pleasure, Colin. Many, many thanks for all your good work. Okay, bye-bye now. Take care there. On the oceans and upon our seas, fish full of mercury. Oh, oh, mercy, mercy.